You may have seen the news that Canada's largest diversified miner, Vancouver-based Tech Resources, is being aggressively courted to merge with a Swiss company, Glencore PLC. A lot of the news coverage has focused on whether Glencore will succeed in its proposal or not. But in my opinion, there's an equally relevant storyline here because tech has ambitions to become one of the world's largest copper-focused miners. And copper is at the center of the energy transition. And as my guests on this week's Down to Business explain, while demand for copper is already massive, it's expected to double in a little more than a decade. And we haven't been finding very many new copper deposits in recent years. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Kevin Murphy and Mark Ferguson, directors of Metals and Mining at S&P Global Commodity Insights, both based in Halifax, who look at copper and crunch the numbers. Here's one of their stats. In the 90s and in the first decade of the 2000s, we discovered about 10 major copper deposits every year. The last decade, so 2010, 2019, we discovered 1.9 on average. That's about an 80% drop. And then in 2021, zero deposits were discovered. There's a lot of reasons, and to some extent, it's a market failure. Companies are spending to explore where they already have mines, because that's a lot easier than finding a brand new copper deposit. And this is one reason that tech looks so valuable. It has copper mines and a pipeline of new copper projects, and there are a couple big mining companies that would rather buy those than replenish their own pipeline through natural discovery. And here's another reason why all this is relevant. The new copper deposits we're finding are much lower grade, which means they have to be a lot bigger. The largest mines now are open pits that are several kilometers long and across and hundreds of meters deep, and there's not that many places left to look for new copper deposits. So the world is going to increasingly face some difficult decisions about how we get the metal we need for an energy transition. As always, this interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Kevin, Mark, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business today. Very happy to be here, Gabe. Yeah, great to be here. I wanted to start by talking about the transition away from fossil fuels, which means we're going to have to electrify everything. Why is copper so important as a metal for electrification? Uh, let me jump in there. When you think about all the renewables that need to be built to reduce our reliance on fossil fuel energy sources, there's solar, wind, electric vehicles. They all require the copper to feed that electricity or to transport that electricity to market. So that's really where that huge amount of demand for copper is going to come from. And we've already really started to see that uh, with the rollout of electric vehicles in China, the EU, and increasingly in North America. It's really just starting to come to the fore. So it's not necessarily like one thing, it's everything. It, it absolutely is. There are so many aspects of the energy transition that are going to require copper that it shakes the foundation for the mining sector. So the estimates I've seen on that is that like the current annual demand for copper is around 25 million tons per year. The demand is going to basically double in the next 12 to 14 years. Like if we meet all of the mandates, install all the solar, wind turbines and electric wires needed. And so how unusual is that sort of a demand growth? Like, have we seen that in the last 50 years for any other commodity? The second question is like a corollary to that is, do you think we have enough copper to meet that demand? Well, that's it. Those are some tricky questions. I would say that, the, <laughs> you know, when you think about China, when it really started to come into the fore in the early 2000s, there was an immense draw upon a lot of, we'll call them industrial commodities. So copper, steel, nickel, zinc, all of those commodities really 
came into an increasing amount of demand at the time. Was it a doubling? I'd have to go back and check our numbers, but it was certainly rapid growth from, we'll say, 2004 through 2012. When you think about lithium, cobalt, and nickel, their roles in batteries for electric vehicles is very pertinent, and there is extremely strong growth. But the difference between copper and those commodities is that those are relatively small markets. Copper is a very large market in the metals mining space to begin with, and so that growth profile is just accentuated by the sheer scale of the copper sector. Right. Your guys' bread and butter is sort of looking at all the copper deposits in the world, you know, adding it all up. Is there enough copper that we've found so far to meet this expected demand? Mark, I'll jump in on this one. There are a lot of copper deposits out there in the world. Some of them are very large. For example, you've got Pebble in Alaska. The problem is, is that not every copper deposit that exists has a very clear route to being into production. So uh, we're seeing that in the medium term, so in the next five years or so, there's just not as many quality assets that are going to be coming online. You know, the past few years, there's been some really high quality assets that are going to have very strong production portfolios. But looking out in like three, four, five years, we don't see those assets coming online to meet the demand that's going to be uh, coming up with the energy transition story. So there are a lot of assets out there, but just not that many are progressing into production. Like before, it sounds like what you're saying is there's going to be a deficit. And I want to talk to you guys about what that'll mean. But the numbers that you guys sent to me in a spreadsheet about copper discoveries were pretty stark. Between 1990 and 1999, so the 90s, on average, there were 10 major copper deposits discovered per year. And the next decade was like roughly the same. But if you look at the last decade from like 2010 to 2020, there was an absolute drought. There were many years where there were no copper deposits discovered or only one discovered. And that drought occurred even though exploration spending went through the roof, like quadrupled, I think, from basically what it was in the 90s. Does that, that's why I started with the question of, are we running out of copper? Because it seems like we, aren't, we just aren't discovering as many copper deposits as we used to. There's a very interesting play that's going on with exploration budgets and where they're being directed. So over the past couple of decades, uh, exploration money has been poured more into mine sites uh, rather than generative programs. So that means like existing deposits that we already know exist. We're just saying like they're bigger than we thought. Exactly. It's it's going to uh, deposits that have been known for decades or mines that have been producing for decades, because those are sure things a lot of the time. You get more bang for your buck on average by investing in exploration at your mine site. You're more likely to be able to add copper tons when you're exploring there. With grassroots or purely generative exploration programs, it's really hit and miss. You might find something, but you might spend a lot of money and not get anything at all. Of course, you could also hit the bonanza, but that's rolling the dice. And ultimately, companies feel more well-served in the near term by continuing operations at their mines rather than going out, finding a brand new asset, and then spending the time and money to bring that over into production because that could take very easily 15, 20 years 
to get that brand new asset into production. Right. I was just talking this week with the CEO of a large mining company in Canada, uh, Agnico Eagle, who said, you know, historically, they had always chosen to build their own mines. But more recently, they've found that it's a lot quicker, and he used the term cheaper, basically, the equation shifted to buying mines, because these days, the standards around environmental regulations, around working with local indigenous communities where new deposits often seem to be found on their territories, it takes a lot longer, and there's a lot more risk. There is this sort of bottleneck occurring where money's not being spent to discover new deposits, and yet the demand is coming. What are some of the implications of that? I would say with the interest over tech resources in the last couple of weeks, we're seeing some of that uh, result of the lack of real exploration into uh, pipelines where companies are looking around now. Uh, They know that in five, six, seven years, copper prices are probably going to be pretty strong because of high demand and maybe weaker pipeline and So leading to deficits. So they're looking for that instant win. They don't want to, and in many cases, they can't spend 15 years developing an asset. So they are going out and they're getting a company or the projects that have gone through all the hoops. Like you said, permitting, while an absolutely necessary step to make sure that we're being environmentally sound, it's getting longer and longer and it can be a roadblock. So it is easier to acquire an asset that's at that stage, that's through those hoops. Yeah. Although it is more expensive in the long run to do that. And it's tricky too. Uh, you know, when we had the last big cycle, you know, prices were high into 2012. There were lots of cost overruns. And, you know, by the time some of those mines came online, a lot of those producers were, you know, met with a lot of in- investor discomfort with how things went. And so there was a, a big push to, to focus on capital discipline from 2013, 2014, even into now. A lot of companies don't want to spend a large sum of money on a project that's going to take 10 years to build uh, with uncertain ramifications around ESG, permitting, legal risks. It, 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 and for that reason, it could be very much an easier path to buying an existing operation to secure that copper that you, you figure you're going to be able to sell for a higher price as Kevin related to. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So that's an interesting dynamic is that like existing mines are getting more valuable. But I think you guys also said that copper prices are probably going to get higher and higher. How does this all end? Do we find substitutions for copper? Do the mines that do exist massively increase their production? Where do you guys see this heading? That is the $10 million question. Definitely. Uh, uh, you know, high prices inevitably spur on a supply response and some way, shape, or form. But it is still challenging to see how we're going to meet that supply in five to 15 years. You know, there will be a push to better recovery rates at various mines. There will be new technologies on that front. There will be an effort to improve and increase on recycling. But fundamentally, without a new source of what has to be large-scale mines, it's hard to foresee us offsetting that copper deficit. And so there will also be a shift to some substitution, uh, or it could impact or delay 
some of the energy transition efforts if the economics work as well as they currently do if prices go higher. I mean, that's the other aspect to this. I know that there are these companies out there who have identified these huge potential deposits of copper, but it's so low grade, you'd lose money for every pound of ore you mine because copper prices aren't high enough. Are we going to see a lot more of these low grade mines, which are going to be massive operations come online? That is definitely a potential. And when you look at current mines or free deposits, which are, you know, the bulk of those Latin American mines. And can you explain what porphyry means too? So a porphyry deposit is just, they are generally speaking, extremely large multi-commodity, have a lot of copper, gold, silver, frequently molybdenum. They're huge, but they're very low grade. So your average copper porphyry is about 0.5% copper. Like half of 1%. Half of 1% of copper. They are extraordinarily low grade. So they require, generally speaking, billions of dollars of infrastructure to build extremely large mines and extremely large plants to process lots of ore to get the copper out. And one of the problems that we are seeing, at least with existing mines, is that their grades are slowly going down. So you had asked earlier if existing mines can take a lot of that weight of the demand. And the answer is not really. <laughs> a lot of them right now are expanding just to keep their production stable as their grades decrease. I see. You mentioned recycling, and there's a saying out there that I've heard from people that there is more copper in landfills today than there is in the ground, say. No one seems to think recycling, however, is a real viable alternative. Is that going to change? I think it's going to have to change. Um, and that is also going to be a bit of an EV story uh, because you're going to have these extremely large batteries coming from cars that have to be disposed of some way. And you're not going to see those going into landfills nearly as often as you would see, say, a phone battery because they're being tracked a lot better. So recycling facilities are going to be appearing more often for these batteries, which will be able to recover the metals. Hopefully, how much will those be able to alleviate demand? That is an excellent question. So I'm throwing only complicated questions out, but I was curious to what extent people are anticipating that current tensions between Canada and China, the US and China, and other sort of Western powers in China could complicate copper supply issues in the future. Well, really, a lot of the major miners are based out of the UK or Switzerland for Glencore or Canada. So production is pretty diverse. A lot of stuff does go through China, for sure. The supply chains for refining concentrate, a lot does go through China. But there are smelters in Europe, all through Latin America. So while we are very reliant on China for demand, they aren't in control of lots of production. They have production within China. They also have companies that have assets in Africa and other regions. But really, it's quite a diverse group of countries that the different companies that are major copper producers call home. I see. So this is Gabe interjecting just a quick note on this if you're looking for specific numbers. China held a preeminent position in copper, accounting for 47% of smelting, 42% of refining, and it also uses 54% of all copper. 
That's straight from a July 2022 S&P report. It will be also be interesting to see how the Inflation Reduction Act prompts a supply chain, I don't know if I want to call it revision, but switch in, uh, in, in supply chains, right? You know, because if some of those commodities are going into China and then coming back or coming across to the U.S., there's obviously implications from the Inflation Reduction Act that prevents companies from capitalizing on EV credits and, and other aspects too. So I think in the next five to 10 years, you will see how the Inflation Reduction Act really starts to play a role in shifting that security of minerals, uh, perhaps stimulating some changes in where some of these commodities are refined. When you think about copper concentrates, yes, a lot do go into China for smelting. Is it going to prompt some countries to build their own uh, smelters to capitalize on some of the IRA impacts and deviate some of that flow into China? It's very challenging to see. And certainly when you think about Canada or the U.S., it's been a long time since a new smelter has been built in one of those two jurisdictions. And they're likely to face the same kind of ESG permitting legal challenges that have prevented those from being built in the recent past. And arguably, that's really why a lot of that new copper smelting capacity has been built in uh, China in the past 20 years. Right. So that's the other sort of bottleneck besides getting the actual copper itself is you have to smelt it and then refine it. I know Canada has won. And like you're saying, it's Glencore's. And I know that it's been a major source of contention. The arsenic emissions from that facility are so high that the Quebec government is in the process of relocating 200 households at great cost. So... Maybe the final question to end on is, what about copper exploration? Do you guys expect to see massive increases in the amount of money that companies are spending to look for copper? And what areas will this likely affect? And we do think that, although probably not in 2023, we do think looking out to 2024, we're going to see more money being allocated towards copper exploration, pretty likely at this point that we're going to see certain jurisdictions benefit more than others. The IRA could very well spur additional exploration in Canada, so primarily in BC, all around the US, around uh, Freeport's holdings and whatnot. Probably we'll see an increase in copper exploration, but also Australia. How much uh, it's going to increase by, that's a good question. Will we ever go back up to nearly $5 billion where it was in 2012? I'm beginning to feel that if that's going to happen, it's very far down the road, unfortunately. All right. So this is this bottleneck issue is real and it's not likely to get resolved anytime soon. It's kind of the upshot of it. It's, uh, yeah, um, the bottleneck right now, it feels like a very large part of the industry is a bottleneck where we're not putting quite enough into exploration. We're not putting quite enough into project development. Uh, and we're putting a bit too much into the existing assets that we know have a finite amount of resources and can only get so big. I would say it's interesting too, because I think the markets recognize this. When you look at Prices across a wide swath of industrial commodities, they haven't really, I mean, they fell last year, but they're still relatively high, historically speaking. So they recognize that there's this energy transition related demand coming through the queue. 
And it's providing a lot of support for prices when last year, many people could have seen prices falling a lot more substantially. One thing I always ask my guests or when I'm, when it's pertinent and I'll ask you guys is we've made in Canada, all these commitments to cut our emissions, you know, with interim targets along the way until we get to net zero at 2050. Do you guys have an opinion on whether or not we'll meet those or come close to meeting those or how that will shake out? That is a tricky question. I <laughs> I think the aspirations of the, of the government are in the right trajectory. And they, in the current environment, they're also starting to recognize that with a focus on critical minerals and developing our resources, we're not going to be able to hit those targets, right? As I alluded to earlier, high prices could impede the energy transition without resolution to some of these supply chain uh, supply issues. So. I think the aspiration is there. I think the government's increasingly in the past couple of years have recognized that the supply of mined material for that energy transition is, is, is becoming more critical. All right. Mark and Kevin, thank you both for coming on the show and talking to me about copper. I really appreciate it. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That was Kevin Murphy and Mark Ferguson, directors of Metals and Mining at S&P Global Commodity Insights and they're both based in Halifax. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Bryce Hall executive produced this episode, designed the logo, and composed and performed our original music. Victoria Wells, Noella Ovid, and Pamela Heaven contributed web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes. But you can show support for Down to Business by liking episodes and sharing with friends. Anything helps. And you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.